Caverns. Caverns and tunnels. Caverns and tunnels and ice and monsters. Ah, yes. So much to think about. So much to do. I'm on a new attack crew, but I only roll a two. Ha <laughs> ha. Whoa, 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 whoa. Greetings, programs. It's old buddy Hankerin' Fernale here, back with another episode of the RPG Mainframe. And you know what? We're going to get into some Hedy Lamar right now. We're going to get a little bit nuts. We always do that, right? This is Mainframe 68. Welcome back to the podcast. Good to have you guys. I know it's been a while. And uh, frequently I've been talking about, you know, the challenges of finding new uh, eddies to plumb in in the the think space of RPGs right now. Because like so many things in our lives, they're, you know, a little bit on hold. Sure, we're playing online and all that. But there's just a little bit less energy just floating through the stratosphere. And so it takes more to harvest it in. But not today. Today, an old beast has reared its head that has not appeared for quite some time. Qu- kind of amazing to me, honestly. And I'm, uh, I needed a good hour there to uh, step away, do the dishes, get outside a little bit, let the thinky thinky cells do what thinky cells do, converting oxygen into thinky. <laughs> so I had to go do some of that because I am not the sharpest tool in the drawer, but, you know, I'll get the job done. <laughs> Basically, it is this sort of gnarly question about relativism is relativism still alive and well or is it actually worse than it's ever been and you know what does that word mean and why am i terrified of it and and how has it come to visit it's the thing on the doorstep so uh you know kick back relax crack yourself a beverage because we're going to dive deep into the impact of relativism on the rpg hobby right here on mainframe 68 Okay, hey, we're back. That was a pretty cool intermission. Welcome back to Mainframe 68. We are talking about relativism. Okay, first of all, what the hell, hankering for now, what the hell is relativism and why do I care? Okay, let's cover those in order. Okay, first of all, relativism is a is a really old word and it, it hasn't been terribly interesting most of its life <laughs> basically it, it it as you might guess comes from you know relativity or this is relative to that now now relativity that word instantly evokes thoughts of light speed and equals mc squared and all this cool stuff but really relativity in the einsteinian sense is far more simple and could almost be described in the same way as relativism. And that is that all things must be considered from a certain perspective or relative to a perspective. Now, this is a, a very interesting and more modern way of thinking 
when you look at it in the Einsteinian way, which is why he was such a genius, one of many reasons, obviously, is that we don't live in a world of simple one-dimensional truths. What seems like truth from one perspective is actually completely distorted from another based on speed, based on all kinds of things in the world of physics. But when you're talking about the world of concepts and the world of truth and the world of opinions, that's where you don't get into relativity, you get into relativism. A similar sort of mindset or precept that asserts that concepts, ideas, and actions are not one-dimensionally or unilaterally right or wrong or better or worse. It all depends on perspective. Now, this may not seem like a big deal, but at certain times in history it has been a big deal, and it goes all the way back to great thinkers who came centuries before us, Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, then way fast forward to St. Augustine, to David Hume, to Immanuel Kant, to Friedrich Nietzsche, Really, you could almost list all of the ethical thinkers out there have had to attack this issue because they want to attack the issue. They want to say, no, when it comes to certain bedrock level truths, relativism is not useful for us because it sort of becomes wishy-washy. And even the RPG mainframe in all its vast other dimensionality doesn't have time for us to get into all of those thinkers, especially the likes of David Hume or Immanuel Kant. These are highly complex ethical thinkers trying to outwit relativism on the chessboard of proving conceptual veracity. Whoa, that was a big one. Now, here's where relativism sort of resurfaced, which was in the 20th century, relativism for the first time became very useful in criminal court cases. So it became, for the first time, believable that the perspective or the the, uh, circumstances or the upbringing or the conditions of the plaintiff, uh, the perpetrator, sorry, of the perpetrator could actually be salient to their level of guilt. So it's basically saying guilt is not this sort of yay or nay truth. It is relativistic. It is relative to the circumstances of the perpetrator. So if a perpetrator has had, in many of these cases where relativism became part of the legal system, they had terrible, terrible circumstances in their lives. Terrible, terrible childhoods with horrific tragic treatment that most of us can't even have nightmares about, and this gives a context to their level of guilt. Okay, now, we don't want to get all the way into that, but part of this is how relativism re-entered the modern think space of people, is through its use in court case, and often a controversial use in court cases, especially in the beginning, as um, America became more and more interested in and willing to use litigation. A lot of people say that, you know, in the 80s, that it was the age that litigation was truly born because people started suing each other if they would fall down on someone else's sidewalk or, you know, my son broke his arm on your skate ramp and you're going to get sued. You know, that's a relatively young phenomenon, even though now in 2020, it seems like that's just a thing. But in the, you know, up to the 70s, that, that wasn't really a common thing to sue your neighbor because you got hurt in their yard. And so this was part of this this sort of burgeoning age of litigation that we now live in without really noticing. And so relativism re-enters our sort of group think, right? Circumstances matter. Your perspective matters on the overall perception of what is true here. 
And we, there's the details you could get into just to document this movement are, are so vast that they'll keep me from getting me, me to my point. So relativism then later in the 90s becomes another, it sort of resurfaces again, and this time it's being used by feminist philosophers. And what they want to say is, you know, all this stuff you guys have been reading as if it's absolute truth was all written by like well-off white dudes. And you know what? It matters that it comes from that point of view. It actually can taint or affect the truth or the veracity of their claims. And people are saying this, you know, in college courses. And it's very polarizing, you know, and, and not polarizing just for people who, you know, are against feminism or anything like that. You know, polarizing for very reasonable people who are saying, no, man, you can't just throw truth under the bus because now you have a new perspective. And on the other side, they're saying, well, no, that's exactly what we're going to do. I mean, apparently you you read the material because you understand what's at stake here. And this is really how relativism re-entered the academic scene in the 90s. And I can tell you, it was a real crisis. It was a crisis because one of the joys of learning, especially in the sort of collegiate atmosphere, is that you're you're tapping into this sort of gold mine. You're you're finding these these little deposits of wealth that are the bedrock of truth, the bedrock of critical thinking, the bedrock of of knowing and of creating new knowledge, and it's exciting, it's fun. But in the 90s, as the sort of credit revolution is evolving and lots more kids are going to college, and then you throw in this relativism thing, a lot of people, I think, and this is just pure opinion, I have no evidence for any of this, came out of that era in college having at least some aspect of relativistic thinking under their belt. That there were so many different viewpoints emerging then under this banner of relative thinking or relativism that it affected people deeply and on a wide scale. Okay, so that's that's what, to me, relativism really is. And to be honest, it has has sort of um, snuck back under the covers in recent years. The the word relativism doesn't come up very often (laughs) nowadays, if you hadn't noticed. So there's that first part. And now the second part was like, what does it have to do with our glorious hobby, right? And so especially now in the age of COVID and the, the, the worst year in anyone's memory, 2020, we're all holding on to our hobby with tooth and claw, right? I don't know about you guys, but I sure am. I want to hold on to my enthusiasm, hold on to seeing all my old friends, hold on to great memories, hold on to, to what it is that got me interested in this in the first place and, and galvanize those things. And so what does relativism have to do with this? Well, it has to do with our hobby what it has to do with everything else, which is that it comes with a sort of a, a flush of people or popularity or momentum is when it sort of arrives generally. And when it does arrive, it tends to throw what used to be well-accepted norms into question and can create a polarizing effect with people. Okay, so now let's get specific. If that's what it's going to do to the hobby, and 
Is it on the rise again? I'm not quite sure. But if that is what it's going to do, let's get specific and get down to a case that has some emotional guts to it. Now, a lot of you are on Discord today, and we got into a very lively discussion, also in Twitter, a very lively discussion about whether or not fudging a dice roll is something that's acceptable for a dungeon master. Now, I'm not really here in the podcast today to talk about all of the perils of the, the heresy of cheating a dice roll and all of the nuances of cases in which it might be the right idea for the fun of the game. I understand all these different arguments, and I think we all see the multidimensionality of this simple issue. That sometimes, yes, the DM has a strong urge not to accept what comes up on a die. And I could see how on the other side, from what I believe, that people could see that sometimes circumstances ask that that die roll is lied about for the name of fun at the table, right? And I feel strongly, terribly strongly in the other direction, which is that anytime you lie about anything in life, and make no mistake, fudging is lying. Anytime that you employ dishonesty in anything you do in life, large or small, it's wrong. And it will come back and get you in some way. It's not good for you. It's unhealthy and it's wrong. Deception and lying is not right. It, it, it is fundamentally wrong. And so right here, you guys can see how fired up I get about this. But it isn't about the fudging of dice. I can understand how people would have a different view here. That's okay. I'm okay with that. I love a lively discussion. Y'all know that. I love something to talk about over a few mugs. It's exciting. It's fun. And especially if I trust and and enjoy the people around me, I want to hear what they have to say, even if it's different than what I have to say. But here's the frightening part, and here's where relativism is this sort of hydra, where one of its heads is cut off and two pop up. <laughs> Can I ever be right about anything again with the hobby? And this, this is what troubles me, is can relativism sort of throw truth under the bus? And, and it definitely comes with the so-called masses. Larger and larger groups of people tend to adopt relativistic viewpoints. It's just a thing that just tends to happen. And I think now, after this five-year growth period we've been going through in the tabletop hobby, and you can't deny that, man, this growth thing has been crazy. You know the mantra of all people. Well, if it grows the hobby, it's a good thing, right? But with all these people comes this relativistic thinking. And now... If you believe something is right, and especially if you feel strongly about it, you are accused of being a gatekeeper because you won't accept that everything is possibly correct. And man, here's where like, you know, logical slip, slippery slope stuff starts going. If everything is possibly correct, what's the point of saying anything? If I just have these sort of opinions that are one more penny in a wishing well, that takes away a lot of what makes me feel proud of all that I've been through and all that I've done. I'm not gatekeeping anybody because I love people. <laughs> but I'm somehow forbidden even from having my own experience and my own value. And I'm forced to just be sort of one more penny and a penny next to another penny that may be the worst of them all. <laughs> But this view is perceived that, well, every table's different. And if all they want to do is make, you know, rape jokes 
and uh, lie about all their dice rolls and have long, boring interludes and, you know, drink too many Mountain Dews and complain that they feel sugar hang over the next day. Well, that's just as right as, <laughs> as a good game where everyone is respected and you're eating carrot sticks. <laughs> See, I don't want this to be the case. I don't want relativism to win because I don't want to think that just any opinion gets to stand right next to just any other. And here's where maybe it's time now to return to some of our great thinkers. Remember these guys centuries ago have been working on this problem and are smarter than, well, definitely smarter than me. There's a lot of different solutions and a lot of them get complex logically, especially when you get into Immanuel Kant and the, the noumenal world and looking at absolute objects. And Plato does this kind of stuff too. And he says, hey man, it's not just mathematic objects. There are ethical objects out there. And you're just like, whoa, <laughs> like, hold up. I, I don't know if I can process that. And so let's find one of these thinkers that can put it in plain enough terms that we can use it to solve this scary relativism problem. Which is like, hey man, you really don't have any say on what's sort of, you know, cool or good or best in this hobby. You know, your value to this community that you've been sort of skating on is all a sham. You're just a gatekeeper and you hang around people who agree with you. And I, I don't want that to be the truth. That, that's hurtful to me. <laughs> Makes me downright sad. I feel sad. So let's look back to my man Aristotle. Aristotle is the bomb in large part because I think that a lot of his logic came before there was an opportunity to really get in depth into sort of logical language and so what he would do is try to use this it stands to reason type approach right and and this approach it definitely supposes that you aren't surrounded by a bunch of so-called devil's advocates which I, I, I know you guys have probably noticed this, that the internet is the breeding ground of devil's advocates because since they're arguing through a screen, it's perfectly enjoyable to take a view they do not believe in just to poke a hornet's nest. So in Aristotle's time, if he's looking around at a bunch of us and we're gathered around Aristotle to hear his wisdom, it's kind of assumed that his force of personality, if he says something, I mean, you know, don't you guys, you guys are all rational people. Don't you think that sort of stands to reason? I don't think one of us is going to be picking at Aristotle about some edge case of some guy that he knew, you know, at some point who maybe said a thing that he also doesn't agree with. And there was a little more uh, code of honor in thinking, I think, at that time. Manners were more intense. And so Aristotle's solution to this relativism problem is he basically evokes the power of magnanimity. That's the word that he used, magnanimity. He evokes this word as a power word, as, as a campfire word, a, a base of the pillar word, that you can return to this word. And if you're honest with yourself and you're not playing devil's advocate, you have in your mind a perception of this word. This word means greatness. This word means bigness. This word means your best self, your best anything, your best day, your best year, your best action, the best aspect of who you are. That is magnanimity. Magnanimity is a thing you see in people that you admire, a thing that you see sometimes, if you're lucky, in yourself that you admire. Boy, those are great days, usually when you're helping other people out. 
And so Aristotle says the way that we can judge if a thing is truly right or not is if it lifts the magnanimity of those who espouse it. Now, of course, there's going to be a bunch of difficult cases, especially in our hyper-modern world, which are going to be difficult to categorize as, are they lifting the greatness of the person putting forth this? It can, it can get a little murky, right? And so Aristotle isn't providing any logical proofs here that are going to withstand bullet storms. He's simply asking that you agree that that idea is difficult to argue with. It feels right. And if you're honest about it, you can, you can feel the bedrockiness of that. Then if you're asking, is a decision, should I do this? And you choose something that makes you a better person, that makes you greater, that makes you feel better, or that makes others admire you, or you see others making these decisions that make you admire them, that was a good decision. That was right. Okay. So let's say that we adopt this view because I sure as hell do. I love it as an explanation because, frankly, I get lost in all the logical explanations of what's right and wrong, what's correct and what's true. I, I get lost. Logic is difficult for me. I'm an artist and a writer. I'm, a, I'm lost in creativity. I don't do well with logic and analysis. <laughs> but magnanimity I can relate to. I can feel it in my stomach. And so now let's come back to this little Waterloo. And as someone put it today uh, on uh, Twitter, you know, which hill are you willing to die on in the argument about what's best in tabletop role-playing games? And I think this is could be the one that I want to die on, which is that the, go the gods of our hobby, the, the immutable core of what we do, is the fun of not knowing how the dice are going to roll. Now, we dress that with all kinds of negotiation, all kinds of storytelling and edge cases and nuance and complexity that we do not have the time to talk about. It would be like describing every role-playing game that ever been played. But at the core of it all, it's just like in poker. The core pillar, the god of poker, is how the cards come up in an almost, not completely, but almost random fashion and the excitement of seeing patterns in it and of mitigating those patterns with different ideas and techniques is the root of why it can be called a game and not a, just a conversation. So now we return to this big Aristotle digression that I went on. But I want to use Aristotle's magnanimity argument to answer this question of can a dice roll be fudged by a DM or should of course they can. Jeez, that's easy to answer. Uh, I mean, all I have to do is have the dice roll hidden, right? And then say something that isn't in front of you. Now, the common counter-argument to say why this is okay is that there's going to be a more fun outcome at the table for players. And, you know, I suppose as many counter-arguments to that that there are, I could suppose, I, I could see times where that could be the case. I'm not going to be unreasonable about it. But that, to me, is a pebble being thrown at a dragon. The dragon is the magnanimity of absolute transparency and truth 
in that root, that core of, of what we do that makes it a game, not a conversation, which is to tumble those glorious polyhedrals and not know what's going to come up. And there's a couple seconds, especially if you get hardcore parkour and your dice is bouncing around, rolling over the top of the edge of the, the rim there. It's spinning in such a way. There's a couple seconds sometimes that are just white hot suspense. And if any of those rolls, if any time those dice go tumbling and their results are not absolute and they're up for the interpretation of the honestly megalomaniacal game master who decides that what they perceive as dramatic is greater than the outcome of our precious little number generators. That is far less magnanimous than to stand tall together, the game master as a player and the players as player, to stand together and stand by those results. That to me, is the essence of greatness. Now, there's so many other things to talk about in what we do because we have a complex hobby. How fun is it? How funny is it? Is there background music? Are there good snacks? Is the story evolving well? Is everyone staying interested because the action is moving quick enough? Is everyone getting the kind of game they dream of? Is everyone within a safe conceptual space? Does everyone know each other and feel comfortable with each other? Are players comfortable with victory and defeat? Are players playing the kind of genre and the kind of setting that they enjoy? And are they energetic at the end of the night as well at the beginning? All these things are very complex questions. But they, to me, are not the bedrock, the spinning molten sphere at the center of what we do. Quite like the fun of not knowing what's going to come up on that dice next. And uh, any of you absolute table toppers over there are out there listening who uh, have been to ATCON know that one of my favorite games, while at the cups, as they say, is to just roll double D20s together and see who can get doubles and then pass the dice. And you can start to bet on who's going to get the next one and who's gotten too many and you never get any. And then it becomes a game of who can get the higher doubles and on and on. The dice go around and around and it is terribly fun. And there is absolutely none of the trappings of what we would consider an RPG in that game. That game strips every single aspect away and only leaves you with the not knowing what the dice is going to tumble to. And it's still damn fun. Now, some people would argue that you can do the same thing in the other direction. You can have a whole night of gameplay. People say this all the time. They almost sort of boast about it, right? We had a whole night of gameplay and we never even rolled one die, right? Now, that may be fun for your group. I can't deny that. For me to tell you it wouldn't be fun, that's just weird. <laughs> if that's what you enjoy, I can't tell you it's not fun. <laughs> but I would argue that if you go through an entire night and one dice never tumbles you did not play a role-playing game. You had a conversation. You did not play a game. You had a conversation. You talked about your characters. You talked about your story. And maybe you talked in character. Maybe you progressed your story. That's all fantastic. And as we all well know, is terribly fun at times. But the word game is so important here. A game has constraints and it requires outcomes. And they can't just be whatever we decide. That is not a game. That is a conversation. 
So in my heart, I knew that this argument mattered to me on levels that had more to do than just my GM style or my gut. I knew that there was something deeper here and it took me the last couple of hours of sort of wandering my house going, oh, grumble, grumble, huff, huff, grumble, grumble. Why is this affecting me so deeply? I'm going to go poop in my neighbor's yard. <laughs> That'll show the universe not to mess around with old Brandish Gilham. Oh, by golly, you good for nothing bastards. Why I ought to... After a few hours of that, I realized it's because I'm so terrified of this relativistic attitude. And by extension, I think that the popularity of our hobby right now brings this relativism with it. It's the rats on the ship, so to speak. <laughs> I don't like how relativism wants to take away the veracity of saying something. And maybe even, God forbid, calling out to your own experiences as evidence which is also in some ways losing style. That's now called gatekeeping as well. I don't like that. But it doesn't really make a podcast for me to say I don't like something. So I had to dig deep into thinking about what is it? When do you know something is right and correct? And it's when it's that feeling of magnanimity, that feeling of the betterness. It's better if we're truthful. Now, it may be harder. It may be uncomfortable. It might even derail some things that you really wanted to happen and dreamed about. I, I get that. And that's unfortunate. But I truly believe that the hardship that could come out of honesty is always better for us as human beings than the joy that can arise from dishonesty. Because the joy that arises from dishonesty to me is not only short-lived, it's illusory. How do I know that these sort of assertions that I'm making are quote-unquote correct or right or quote-unquote true? Because they have a magnanimous feel to them. One who is always honest is a great person, even when that's a difficult truth to be honest about. As a matter of fact, that makes me one little notch greater. Easy truths are easy to be honest about. Difficult truths take grit, and grit you can't spell great without grit. <laughs> it's so stupid. Dang it, you stinking old neighbors. You good for nothing, crazy pole cats. I'm going to show you what I can do. I'm going to, um, I'm going to ride my bicycle down to town and get a beer and think about all this stuff. Okay, yeah, have a good one. That's how we argue up in here in Philly. <laughs> Okay, you guys, that's mainframe 68. I want you guys to think deeply, not about whether or not fudging dice rolls is okay or is cool or is good or is best or is terrible. But I, what I want you to do is take Aristotle's criteria of magnanimity and apply it to some difficult questions that you're facing. Or maybe you're facing uh, resistance in someone in an argument that you feel strongly you're correct about. And you don't quite have a tool to say why you're so sure in your stomach that you're right here. And maybe this Aristotelian way of thinking, the sort of the power of magnanimity, of, of knowing in your heart when something makes you a better person. And that means it's right in some important way and can't be undone by a simple argument of relativistic thinking. And it goes the opposite direction as well. 
something that lessens you as a person, that sullies you as a person, is incorrect and likely based on bad assumptions or being argued for bad reasons. If you'd like to read more about Aristotle and how he talks about magnanimity, you're going to want to crack open a somewhat daunting tome called the Nicomachean Ethics. It's a great read from hindsight's point of view, <laughs> but when you're in there, it feels a little bit like um, picking stones out of the garden. <laughs> it's not can be terribly difficult at times just because it's antiquated. Um, but I can tell you, if you can get through the read, it is a fantastic feeling to look back on and something great to tell friends and loved ones about to spread what I do believe is universally agreed upon as the powerful effect of Aristotle's thinking, even after thousands of years, on how we can make better decisions day by day and how we can see truth from falsehood. Keep it real. Don't steal. That sound probably means I need to do something. Keep it real. Don't steal. And you're always going to get a deal. The Sankram Fernell signing off. I'll see you guys on the internet. All right. Peace.